Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is the third and final episode in a three-part series on how the law firm business model will change in response to economic, competitive, and cultural trends. Our guest today is Patrick DiDomenico, the chief innovation officer at leading employment law firm, Jackson Lewis. Patrick literally wrote the book on KM and Legal, appropriately titled, Knowledge Management for Lawyers. In this episode, we talk about whether law firms are at a structural disadvantage to adapt to the legal needs of the future, the consequences of large clients keeping legal work within their in-house departments instead of hiring law firms, and the deep conflict inherent in the billable hour. Patrick also talks about his idea of what could be a, quote, complete disruptor of the legal industry. One example, assuming a future of non-lawyer law firm ownership, could be a sprawling national franchise law company backed by private equity or a group of deep-pocketed investors. As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to finally have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Patrick, I want you to introduce yourself. You've literally written the book on knowledge management for the legal industry. Uh, Tell our uh, listeners how you got to your point, you know, kind of being a thought leader and being uh, someone whose perspective in knowledge management is at the very, very top of the field. Well, thanks again for having me. Yeah, so I uh, first the earth cooled and then the dinosaurs came. Um, So let me think. Uh, So I'm a lawyer, former practicing lawyer. So I graduated in the mid 90s and did the law firm thing for a while in my hometown of Syracuse, New York, and stayed there for almost a couple of years practicing and then moved to New York City and uh, practiced for another uh, seven or eight years at a firm in New York City called Gibbons, then called Gibbons Del Deo. And I was a litigator, general commercial litigation, a little premises liability here and there. And, you know, as I practiced, uh, I didn't hate practicing law. I know a lot of lawyers uh, that get out of it hated it, and they got out of it and did anything they could. I didn't, I didn't hate it. I liked it, but I knew I didn't want to do it forever. And I started thinking, you know, as I started to approach the question about, do I want to become a partner, you know, as a senior associate, do I want to do this forever? Do I want to commit my uh, career, my work life to, you know, partnership in a law firm and really commit? You know, I kind of looked around at the other partners and, you know, they did well and they were challenged and many of them liked what they did, but a lot of them didn't seem very fulfilled in what they were doing. And I myself felt frustration in the practice of law. I felt that it was antiquated. It wasn't keeping up with the times. I saw other industries. I was kind of a little bit of a nerd, a little technology nerd. I liked tech and whatnot. And I found myself trying to make the practice of law more and more efficient and was very frustrated when I had to do things over and over again, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So I started thinking about what should I do 
with my law degree, with my experience as a practicing lawyer. And I thought maybe there's a way for me to help the firm I was working for be better lawyers, be a better firm, be better at practicing law, be a better business. And I started sort of putting together ideas about technology and process improvement. I didn't know, by the way, know of this thing called knowledge management. So this is in the mid-2000s, by the way. So I stopped practicing in 2005 and presented an idea to the managing partner of that firm. And I said, I don't want to practice anymore, but I've got some ideas about how I think I can help the firm be better, stronger, faster. And as I'm sitting there talking to him, uh, he's just sort of looking at me poker-faced and eventually says, yeah, I, you know, I pitched this idea, these random, not random, but well thought out ideas about how to improve the practice of law with sort of a combination of technology, business development, um, research and, and whatnot. And he sort of looks at me and says, well, what do you know about knowledge management? And luckily, before I could answer the question, say, what's knowledge management? He says, because we're looking for someone to do exactly what you're talking about. And he hands me a description of this job which was chief knowledge officer. And I scan it and I see that it's like 85% of what I had just pitched to him. And I said, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So long story short, I become the head of knowledge management for that firm and did some interesting things there. Um, and that's where I learned all about it. Of course, there were some folks at the time who I got to know and learn from. There were very few people doing knowledge management at the time. Yeah, Patrick, um, I, I was going to say, I mean, this is so, so two points, just, just based on the, the early part of your intro. I mean, this very much tracks and your experience is very much tracked with what I've heard from uh, Meredith Williams range and O's mm -hmm. Ram and, yeah. and a lot of the other folks who were very, very early, who are now all chiefs, of course, in this industry. And it, it all, you know, it all kind of comes full circle and it, it, it all is very consistent in that, you know, these were all lawyers practicing law at a mid-level or, or certainly at a high level. And everyone kind of looks at the work that they're doing and sees inefficiencies in it and sees, sees ways to streamline it. And it's funny that all of these paths in 2005, 2007, 9 all converge in the same direction. Of course, you all didn't know each other then, but now all, all, of, all of you are in the same community of knowledge management leaders. Yeah, it's a very, very common story. In fact, we all we made sure our stories uh, were were similar when we when we tell them. Just kidding, of course. No, it's it's true though. There is a group uh, at that time. Scott Rexhoff and his one. He was actually doing it before. I think he was one of the earlier folks. And there's some other earlier folks like we were talking earlier about Jeff Rovner and some other folks. O's O's had been doing it for a long time. But that's early, early days, you know, um, not many firms were doing it at all. So I was lucky enough that the firm I was working for had the concept on the uh, sort of on the radar and it was coincidental and very beneficial. Um, Tom Baldwin is another one. You know, Tom is now with Fireman and Company, but he used to be at the time he was the CKO for, I think, um, Shepard Mullen. 
Uh, so he had, a, I remember he had a blog and I would read his blog. And so when I started thinking about this, I called him up. He was great. He gave me all types of uh, good advice about that. But there were a few people doing it at the time. So it, it was an interesting time and it grew rapidly, um, I think. And then, you know, so I, I then went to some other firms. I went to Deva Boys in Plimpton for a couple of years and worked with Steve Lastris, another another early guy in um, in KM. And then back to Gibbons and then um, to Ogletree Deacons for eight years before I landed here at Jackson Lewis uh, just about a year ago, just over a year ago now I've been with Jackson Lewis. But it is very interesting, the sort of career paths for people that do what I do. Uh, they do have similar origin stories, if you will. One key uh, milestone that uh, that you missed here, Patrick, is is... Uh, the book that you wrote, Knowledge Management for Lawyers, it, it is, you know, I, I think it's it's fair to say the book and the the set of guiding principles for knowledge management among lawyers, primarily at law firms. What spurred you to write that book? And, you know, what can you tell us about all of the experience and all of the trial and error and, and experimentation that went in to provide you the learnings to to write that book? Yeah, um, I kind of try to block that out of my memory because it was uh, it was it was painful to write that book. Not really. Um, in, in all seriousness, it was a lot more difficult than I thought it was. So I would say, you know, as soon as I got into KM, because there were very few people doing it, and even fewer writing about it, I started a blog back then. You know, I was inspired by again folks like Tom Baldwin, who had a great blog back at the time, and. Um, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm writing about this stuff in my blog. Uh, I love to think about it. I love to talk about it at conferences. Yeah, maybe someday I'll write a book about it. There was uh, at least one good book by Greta Russinow, uh, Knowledge Management and the Smarter Lawyer, that was published in, two, I want to say, 2003. So that was really early on. She's Australian, I believe. And I think she was writing from that perspective. And, you know, I think some firms were much more advanced in other parts of the world like Australia in KM. But anyway, I always had it in the back of my mind that I might write a book someday about it. And then, you know, I also did a lot of tweeting and blog posting and other things um, publicly. So one day the ABA uh, reaches out to me and says, hey, we see that you talk a lot about this stuff. Uh, do you want to write a book? And of course, at that point, I couldn't say no because it's the ABA and I had wanted to do it anyway. So I committed to doing it. And I, you know, I, I thought to myself, how hard could it be? I'm just writing about what I do every day. And I've probably already written this book in all the blog posts that I've written. So I'll just consolidate everything and I'll write it, you know, take a couple of months and, um, you know, I'll get up early and stay up late for a couple of months and, and bang it out. Uh, a year later, I finally had the uh, the uh, draft that I submitted to uh, the publisher. And uh, yeah, it took a lot longer. But let me tell you, it was a great, great experience. And it really exemplifies one of the things I love about this community. I reached out to so many of my colleagues at other firms and even at my current firm, Ogletree Deacons, is where I was when I wrote the book. So like Evan Schenkman and Jennifer Mendez, who are still very good friends, you know, 
they helped me sort of flesh out the ideas and they you know, read it ahead of time and whatnot. And, um, but I probably talked to 30 or so KMers in, uh, at other firms and got ideas from them. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned the origin story at the beginning because as I was interviewing people for that book, I kept hearing similar origin stories and it struck me, wouldn't it be interesting to include in the book each, not each, but a, a number of people's uh, um, origin stories. So I actually added an appendix and allowed those folks to, if they wanted to, to write their own origin stories in that book. And I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think there's like 15 or 20 folks who wrote their origin stories, how I got started in KM. So if you're interested in that type of thing, super interesting to read. That's not my writing. That's their writing. I wrote the rest of the book. They wrote the, uh, their own origin stories. So really interesting. So it's a great community that is so willing to share. I know you, you of course, have been to a ton of our uh, KM events and uh, have spoken and have hosted and uh, moderated. So you know that everyone loves to share. Everyone loves to share what they're doing and help people out. It's sort of knowledge management between and among uh, firms. So it's a really great community and I really love it. Yeah, that, that's, I appreciate that. And, you know, it, it is a, a fantastic community. And, you know, this, this podcast and this series that we're doing, Reimagining Law Firms, is very, you know, kind of KM-focused and uh, knowledge management-driven. As you know, the first episode was with Meredith Williams-Range, uh, the, the chief at, at Sherman & Sterling. The second episode it was with uh, Toby Brown, a chief at uh, Perkins Coie. And we're all kind of in investigating here in, in the middle of uh, this COVID pandemic what law firms are going to be in the future, what purpose they're going to serve, what business model they're going to hew to and, and potentially need to adapt to, and what their general value is going to be going forward. And, and you know, I appreciate that, that introduction because I think it's going to set up where we're going next. And the first topic I want to cover is the long-heralded death of the billable hour because it's one of those things that everyone uh, has, has loved to speculate about. And you know, we were talking about this offline uh, about a article that was released, and I'm staring at it here on one of my browser tabs on my computer, and it is called Kill the Billable Hour. It's by Evan Chesler, who was then and, and, and is still the chairman of the you know, Vault One, you know, most prominent firm, Cravath. And uh, I just want to read a line from it, and then I want to talk about when it was published. Uh, read, read a paragraph, I should say. And it's the following, quote, clients have long hated the billable hour, and I understand why. The hours seem to pile up to fill the available space, that clients feel they have no control, that there's no correlation between cost and quality. In truth, most of the lawyers I know don't like the billable hour either. For one thing, it's a subject of debate with clients because it's the most tangible metric they have of the lawyer's efforts. Clients spend a lot of time analyzing, evaluating, and even auditing it. Those efforts remind me of the old joke about the guy who looked for his missing keys under the street lamp, even though he dropped them across the street because the light was better under the lamp. The billable hour makes no sense, not even for lawyers. 
if you're successful and win a case early on, you put yourself out of work. If you get bogged down in a land war in Asia, you make more money. That is frankly nuts. So, uh, Patrick, you referred to me referred me to this article. I'd heard of this article before. I will stop burying the lead. This article was published about twelve years ago, and certainly, yeah, everyone on the line here today can concede that the billable hour is still certainly alive and kicking. What is your take on this? What fascinates you about that article, uh, the death of the billable hour, and what makes you uh, skeptical or not so skeptical about the long-heralded, multi-decade slow death, maybe, of the billable hour? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to top that article and the insights that came out of that article. And of course, people have been talking about it before that article came out and since. And everyone says they hate it. And everyone says we have to kill it. And we've been waiting for it to die ever since. But, you know, to its credit, uh, it's a good way to do some things. It's sometimes the only way to do some things. Or maybe, better said, it's the best way to do some things because the alternatives are not uh, as good. And, you know, speaking generally, and I've worked at several firms, as you know, every firm I've worked at always gives clients options, right? They will say, well, we can bill you by the hour. We can give you an alternative fee arrangement. One of, you know, dozens of options of alternative fee arrangements. Uh, We can do combinations. We can do all different types of things. And as I understand it, industry-wide, not just in my experience, most clients, they ask for the option. And uh, 80% of the time, they still say, well, let's stick with the billable hour because that's what we're comfortable with or or some other reason. And there's always various reasons at play. So it has remained. It's still viable, clearly. The reports I've seen show, you know, about a percentage point every year. It sort of uh, changes, right? About, you know, a few years ago, it was about 16% of the work was uh, alternative fees, and then 17, 18, 19 percent. So it, it 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 seems like it's increasing. It may have started to decrease again. I'm not sure at this point. I haven't looked at the stats uh, industry wide, but it's still viable. And you know, from a from an innovation and knowledge management perspective, there is an inherent conflict between billable work or billing by the hour and efficiency. And of course, everyone who knows about knowledge management knows that efficiency is one of the main goals of why we do what we do in terms of KM. We try to be better, stronger, faster, right? And if we're doing that, then we are by definition spending less time doing, you know, either doing the same uh, work quality and output of work, but doing it in less time. And if you do that, you are sort of cannibalizing your your revenue, right? You're doing the same amount of work in less time. If you're being if you're billing by the hour, you are therefore by definition making less money. 
And no business wants to make less money. Most businesses, including law firms, want to make more money. So there is an inherent conflict there. We all in our in our KM industry talk about, well, wouldn't it be great if we had alternative fees uh, bill by the project or by the matter or by the case, however you want to say it, it, figure out how much it should cost and then come up with a, a, a reasonable charge, flat fee, fixed fee, whatever type of AFA you want to talk about so that it's fair to the law firm. They make a profit and it's fair to the client. And we don't have to worry about writing down every six minutes of our time. Uh, so that inherent conflict, either actively or passively, or maybe that's not the word, but um, perhaps subconsciously thwarts efficiency, right? Because we know, and, and many firms still have billable hour requirements. Probably most firms have billable hour requirements for their lawyers, whether they're associates or partners. You must bill this number of hours, and if you don't, you might not get fired, but you're not going to get your bonus. You might not progress, et cetera. So that inherent conflict is problematic, to say the least. Now, this is not to say, of course, that certainly every firm that I've been associated with, obviously including my current firm, we do everything we can to be as efficient as possible, even though we know there is that inherent conflict. It's our duty as lawyers to be as efficient as possible. I recall I once told someone that our duty as lawyers is not to bill time. It's to do great work, right? It's to serve the client. So even though there's the conflict, we have the duty and the responsibility to be as efficient as possible. So it's it's a difficult situation for sure. And presumably if you apply the kind of abundance mentality uh, if you do really good work and leave dollars on the table that you could have gotten by billing much, much more, the thinking is ultimately, you know, you're kind of paying it for the client will give you more work, right? So I think there's some, exactly. there, there's, you know, some mutual benefit there as well. I want to go to a, a, another topic that I think you know, what you just said is a good segue to, and it is the, um, you know, the, this, this constant struggle between uh, the, the you know pure attorney ownership of law firms versus some other model. Some would argue that uh, law firms are built from the ground up as these billable entities, but that big four consulting firms and that other entities, you know, from a lot in in a lot of different businesses as well, construction, landscape, architecture, you know, whatever it may be, you bill by the project, right? You you kind of construct your architecture firm or construction firm or whatever with that mentality kind of baked in, right? Where law firms arguably uh, have this billable hour idea baked in. Should the uh, various states and and you know Utah is already doing this. I think there's a couple other states that are experimenting with this. Should states open the um, you know the door to non-attorney ownership uh, of of quote law firms and open the door to Ernst and Young and PwC uh, coming in? Do you think that clients will just prefer to work with big four you know institutions over law firms because they are just built from the ground up, structured with project-based billing in mind, versus law firms that are structured like this Evan Chesler article from 2008 uh, with the billable hour in mind? It's a great question. I think it's a fundamental question. And to your point, you know, you've identified 
one of the big threats to law firms, right? We lawyers and law firms in, in the U.S., we have this protection because you have to be a lawyer to be an owner of a law firm. Uh, and as you mentioned, Utah has opened it up and Arizona and California are testing it out. I think they call it a uh, sandbox um, where they're, I don't know exactly how they're testing it, but they're testing this concept of non-lawyer ownership of law firms. And I think I think that's going to be a fundamental challenge. And quite frankly, I think it's going to be one of the big things that finally changes things substantially in our industry. And we'll get back to that in a second, I think. But, you know, when you mentioned the big four as one of these potential new entrants into the law firm ownership and legal services game, it's interesting because I was, you know, I was uh, doing a little research on the big four. And I thought to myself, I, I see and read and hear a lot about how law firms uh, operate and how they struggle and all this. And I came across a podcast about the big four. And the title of the podcast is The Billable Hour Will Cause the Downfall of the Big Four. And I, I saw that and I, I'm like, I got to take a listen to this. And the this it could have been, if you didn't realize they were talking about the Big Four, it was exactly what we talk about in terms of how the bill and what we've just been talking about and how the billable hour is a threat in some ways to uh, law firms. The big four in some areas of what they do, whether it's consulting or, or auditing or whatnot, they actually do do quite a bit of their work billable, like law firms do. So not all of the uh, consultant firms, consultancies, uh, do their work on a project basis. I was under the impression that they did a lot more of it, but you listen to this podcast, and you'll realize that it's a very similar situation to law firms. Now, that's not to say that the big four wouldn't come into the legal space and do that differently. Uh, presumably, that's what they would do. And that's what we've heard a lot in, in the uh, news. But it was very interesting to hear that they are having the exact same concerns about billable hours in consultancies. And and. Clearly, it's a threat to law firms as we know them today. You know, law firms have the moat around them, right? If you're not a lawyer, you can't be an owner of a law firm. Therefore, you can't be, um, you can't generate true wealth and, you know, have all the great benefits of being an owner of a law firm. So if bridges start being formed over that, across that moat, then there's a threat. And clearly, the big four is a threat. They are larger, richer, and more advanced in many, many ways than even the most advanced law firms. Uh, and the thought, of course, is that they could come in and, you know, just wipe us all out uh, in a very short period of time. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's going to happen in that way. But it's clearly a, a threat. Now, all these lawyers in these firms have to do the legal work, right? They still need lawyers to do the work. So lawyers will probably end up in the big four and other um, non-lawyer owner-owned firms or companies. So lawyers will still be doing this work, as we talked about uh, before we got on the call. There will always be the need for the, the legal expertise and the lawyers to do their, do their thing. 
whether they do it as a member of the big four or a legal company rather than a law firm, that is probably in the not too distant future, I would think. I think there's other threats, though. You know, I think there's technological threats, and we've seen many technological improvements take away some of our work, right? I mean, you could start years ago with how discovery used to be put 60 fresh, you know, freshly minted lawyers in a room with boxes and boxes of documents yeah, and fill them out at a hundred dollars yeah, an hour. Yeah, I was going to say, right, that's a, it's a, a cash cow, $350 or whatever an hour for these, these, uh, you know, fresh out of law school uh, associates in a big warehouse. Exactly. So that, I mean, there's still lawyers doing document review, but it's done much more efficiently these days. And it's not as much of a cash cow as it used to be. So we've seen these changes, these technological changes over time. But I'm sort of fascinated with this concept of a complete disruptor of the law firm industry. You know, we were talking earlier before we started recording about, you know, what if a, you know, a a multi-billionaire decided, you know, they wanted to get into the legal industry after that moat is, um, or even a lawyer who's a multi-billionaire, but but after that moat is uh, bridged, you know, even the largest law firms don't, uh, some of the largest law firms have revenues of a billion plus, but um, most large law firms, you know, uh, don't have that kind of money, right? But if you get a uh, a single multi-billionaire or a, a group of billionaires that decide we are absolutely going to change the way uh, law is done and we're going to be a law company and we're going to have great lawyers. They're not going to be owners, but they're going to be very well compensated. But we're going to do this. We're going to run this firm like a company. This will be a law company. It will have efficiency. It will have automation. It will have all these things. And we know that uh, there's been at least one or two companies that have tried this in the past. But I'm talking about a real effort with real money coming at this in a way that um, would be undeniable. That could be a real change, a real change in the industry. That, that so. is that is one of one of the most fascinating parts of the industry for me, right? And I've been thinking about this ever since I spoke to Professor David Wilkins, uh, who was on my podcast. He's a Harvard Law professor and the director of the Center for the Legal Profession, and he observed exactly what you observe, observed, right? Which is that you know you get any other, um, you know, and I talked about this on the last podcast with with Toby, right? But you get. Uh, automobiles or airlines or the big four, right? It's not the big 400, it's the big four. And there's been consolidation. There's been kind of global and national consolidation where in law firms, you still have the AMLAW 200, right? You saw this massive list. And, you know, his point that I, I talk about a lot, you know, is that even Kirkland and Ellis, the largest law firm, you know, today, and we're, we're recording this in, in December 2020, it still has less than 1% of the total legal market share in the US. I think maybe substantially less than 1%, right? Because it's so spread out. I think what you suggest, it could be, I mean, we're talking about reimagining law firms. It could really, I mean, imagine like a, a franchise model for law firms. You take all of these solos and mid-sized firms across the country, coast to coast, consolidate them under a, you know, a group of uh, very wealthy people or wealthy people paying some coordinating kind of committee, 
And um, this law firm now is totally owned by some some other group of, of non-lawyers or non-practicing lawyers. Could this happen? I mean, you know, when this moat is lifted, do you think do you think that's when, uh, to mix metaphors, the, the the floodgates open? Now you just blown my mind with that mixed metaphor, but yeah, you know, I I, I think I think that could be right. You know, if you think about it, there's not a lack of. So I think it's going to be, a, a, again, a combination of the business model and technology, right? And a lot of what we have been promoting for years in, in KM, like document automation, right? So, I mean, you've got companies like LegalZoom, but when you listen to their commercials, they say, we're not, we're not a law firm. We don't provide legal advice. We provide these, you know, services or products. If you need a lawyer, we can put you in touch with one, but we're not a law firm. You know, you have to play that game and balance that appropriately. But again, break that wall down, and now you've got, you know, the legal Zoom products and services, along with lawyers who can use those products and services. And there's firms out there that have made their own products. You know, like I've, we have some ourselves, right, at Jackson Lewis. You know, I'm talking about on a consistent, large scale, you know, having, as you suggested, like a franchise of, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a law company with with locations and serving individuals and, and companies alike, right? This could completely transform the way people consume legal services, both from a, you know, sort of a... Uh, an individual perspective and from the perspective of large corporate clients consuming legal services. I think you're always, again, sort of to go back to one of our points earlier, you're always going to have those lawyers doing that work and doing the expert legal work. I don't think the robots are going to take over anytime soon, if ever, with the real substantive work. You know, I'm a huge fan of I mean, Case Text Technology and lots of other great companies out there. You know that I'm a huge fan of LegalMation, for example, which has technology that allows you to create very good draft pleadings very quickly just by uploading a complaint. You get a draft answer that has to be reviewed and, and edited by a, a lawyer, but saving lots and lots of time. So having that combination of, of technology and lawyers working together without these artificial walls between them and having real business people with real entrepreneurial mindsets and figuring out how to make the product and service better and better and better. Think about Amazon, right? I mean, if you don't listen to interviews with Jeff Bezos, you got to listen to some of these interviews. I mean, I did listen to one the other day, and he takes a long, a long-term view of not only his company and the industry, but sort of the world in general. He's trying to improve things as much as possible, and it's all about the customer. It's customer-centric. Walmart is another company that does that, right? They do everything they can to drive the prices down because it's all, all about the customer. So figuring out how to do that, these incremental and substantial innovations that makes them the giants that they are. People love these companies because, 
I mean, think of the convenience and the um, the great prices and everything else that we love about some of these really, really innovative companies. If you get that sort of energy and that sort of innovation aimed at the legal industry without the regulatory moat, things are going to change. So things so, are going to change in a big way. Yeah, that, that's. I, I think that's a really good encapsulation of that. So we've talked about attorney ownership of law firms and the potential for that being lifted. We've talked about, I'll make it generic, kind of the Jeff Bezos of law and this kind of potential new structure of, of franchising and a large law company that could uh, take up you know 30% of the entire legal industry. I mean, imagine 50 Kirkland and Ellis's all under one kind of corporate roof. We've talked about the big four. We talked about technology and, and all that technology could do to cause a reimagination in law firms. The last piece that I want to talk about, which, which you've thought a lot about, is how clients themselves are cannibalizing the work that once went to law firms. Speak to that. What do you mean when you, when you say that, that clients are kind of uh, taking over a lot of that work and potentially not batching that work out to, the, to, to, to law firms? Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, lawyers love clients, right? That's why we're here to serve our clients. And, um, you know, the, the large corporate clients, as we know, often have sometimes very large in-house teams of lawyers. And that has, you know, at least in my experience over the whatever number of years I've been involved in the legal profession since graduated in 96, can't do the math in my head. You know, that has sort of increased and decreased. You've seen uh, in-house law departments grow and shrink and decide to, you know, hire outside counsel more often or, or pull it back inside and only farm out the very specific work or certain types of work to law firms. So that changes. It goes up and down. But the very, I think the very interesting thing that makes a client also a competitor is that they can, if they want to, keep more of the work themselves by hiring more in-house lawyers. And what is the what is a main difference between the incentive of a client doing their own legal work and the incentive of a law firm doing the legal work for the client is goes back to what we talked about earlier, especially when there's a billable hour uh, involved. It's the delta, right? It's making the the law firm making the profit, right? So if large corporate clients are keeping more of the work for themselves and literally doing that work, then law firms are not getting that work. So law firms are going to have to make it attractive or keep it attractive for corporate clients to want to send the work to law firms. Um, how do you do that? Well, you got to do the best work. You got to have the best lawyers. Uh, you have to do it efficiently, effectively, better, stronger, faster. If you are inefficient and not responsive and, you know, all the things that people complain about law firms about, you're not going to retain that work, right? They're going to hire more lawyers and keep it in inside. So that's a real threat. And, you know, another factor which continues is improved technology, improved resources. Again, companies like yours and others who are providing 
lawyers, whether they're in-house counsel or outside law firms, the ability to do great work efficiently. So, you know, you look at some of the recent surveys of in-house counsel and look at the adoption rates of certain technologies, AI technologies in particular, much higher than law firm adoption rates. Again, why is that? It's because in-house counsel have every incentive to be as efficient as possible. And it's happening. You just look at the look at the surveys and um, the, the sort of writing is on the wall there. So, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of a, of an, of, of a GC, in-house counsel, I'm going to say to my law firms, you had better be efficient. I want to know that you're being efficient. I want to know that you're using the latest technology to be more efficient. And if you can't demonstrate that that's the case, then I'm either going to take my work elsewhere because there's a lot of great lawyers out there, or I'm going to take it back inside the walls of my corporation and hire a bunch of great attorneys to do it more efficiently than... Yeah, no, and I, I get that. I'm going to put you on the, the spot with this question. <laughs> right now, uh, not looking at any particular firm, but looking at just, just you know, AMLAW 100, AMLAW 200, do you think these law firms uh, live up to the Bezos principle that you just laid out of, you know, customer centricity, customer obsession? Like right now, if you had to uh, rate the AMLAW 100 or 200 on that, how are they doing? Well, of course, every single law firm out there, just look at their websites and they'll tell you that, you know, the number one thing is client service. And in my experience, that is true. I've worked with, I've worked with, and I have worked with a lot of great lawyers who absolutely put the client first and do their best. And, you know, that is the passion. I don't think that's the problem. I don't think individual lawyers and quite frankly, law firms, collections of lawyers, I don't think their passion and their dedication to client service and absolutely being the best they can be for their clients is the problem. <clears throat> I think it's the business model that's the problem of a law firm. And by the way, when I say it's the problem, it's not a problem. It works. There's the saying that uh, you know, try to convince uh, a bunch of millionaires that they're doing it wrong, right? A bunch of partners at law firms that they're doing it wrong. You know, it's hard to convince someone who's doing very, very well financially that their their approach is wrong. But to the point of client service is what obviously what it's all about. Absolutely, you know, most of the lawyers I've come into contact with over the years, they absolutely do put their clients first. But again, I think the business model is the challenge. What Bezos and others have done is to look completely differently at how they can put the customer, in their case, first. I mean, just think of all the innovations that have come out of you know, all types of progressive companies. It's not just Amazon. But the other thing that I think is super, super important, and this is very near and dear to my heart because my role as chief innovation officer is innovation. And you look at Amazon and other companies like it, and you know, innovation is all about trying new things, right? And be willing to fail. We don't like to say the F word, right? But to not succeed in some of these things, trying things out. Uh, you know, speaking of Amazon, 
the Alexa device, right? The Amazon Echo. That was a that was a, a probably a winger at uh, at Amazon. They didn't know if it would work or not. Turned out to be a great success, right? And they continue to do that. They come out with products all the time, really innovative things. But they're willing to try different things. The challenge, I think, at many law firms and some law firms do a really good job at it, is that they're not willing. They don't feel comfortable trying things as much as other companies do. Uh, and I think that's a key. And again, that's that's quite frankly why I joined Jackson Lewis uh, as their first chief innovation officer, because you know, this firm is dedicated to innovation. They really want to try different things. They want to explore how we can test different ways to improve client service. And I think that's the only way you're going to really improve things. If you keep doing what you've always done, you're always going to get what you always get. Uh, you are, you're going to always get what you always got, right? But if you try new things, you may be surprised. And it's not just willy-nilly, of course. It's strategic and informed uh, experimentation. And that's the key, I think, to to improving. You got to try new things. I've got one last question for you, Patrick. And this goes to you know the theme of this this mini series that we we've, we've done reimagining law firms and i want to ask you to think ahead by 20 years and based on a lot of the themes that we've talked about today uh can you give us a hot take a, a prediction about where law firms will be in 20 years how they will do business differently how how they will have changed maybe consolidated maybe morphed maybe uh you know i don't know merged um, you know, in your eyes, uh, what what prediction are you most confident in making as to how this um, you know this landscape is going to change in two decades? Well, I am always very comfortable making predictions <clears throat> because, especially so far into the future, because I'll definitely be retired and probably dead by the time any of these come true. Uh, <laughs> So I feel great about it because who's going to know uh, if I'm right or not. Um, but I do think um, assuming some of what we talked about today, especially bridging the moat to law firm ownership changes, if that happens, and I, a lot of signs point to that, I think we're going to see a lot of profound changes a lot sooner than 20 years from now, even if that doesn't change too soon we're going to see certainly some profound changes uh, by then. I do think it's, it's going to be a lot different. <clears throat> um, you know, just look at every other industry. I mean, you name it, right? Every other industry has changed profoundly, but then think about the law, right? It's kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it's stuck in the past, but, you know, it's uh, certainly hasn't um, progressed as quickly and as profoundly as a lot of other industries. Uh, we've certainly improved many of the ancillary things that we do. We mentioned e-discovery, right? We have technology that we use. We're starting to use document automation. A lot of firms have used document automation for a long time, but I'm talking about industry-wide. We're starting to use some of these things. When the floodgates open and when a lot of um, Lawyers and law firms realize that you have to get on the bus and drive the bus or get run over by the bus 
you're going to see a lot of changes. I love that concept. It's uh, I call I think it's called Amara's law, where you overestimate the impact of a new technology in the short run, but you underestimate it in the long run. I think that applies to the law as well, right? Quite frankly, I've been thinking for the last few years that certain technologies are going to catch on, and I thought they would have caught on by now. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I was wrong about that. You know, so that's the short run because I overestimated what I thought the impact was going to be. But definitely 20 years is a long, long time, right? So it's going to, I think, I think a lot's going to change by then for sure. Patrick, I, I really appreciate it. This, this kind of ends our uh, three-part exploration into reimagining a law firm. This has been really enlightening. A lot of the same themes uh, have come up about competition, about like the the uh, the obligation or the you know the requirement to change and adapt to the times to adopt technology. Uh, you know, keeps coming up over and over. And so I appreciate. Uh, your perspective, and I appreciate your your predictions as well, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I've for a long time admired the podcast and admired you as a podcast host and a uh, conference host, and I think you do a really great job at both. And um, I'm honored to be included in this uh, group, in particular of uh, of uh, episodes. I. Um, I really like Meredith and Toby a lot, and uh, they're super sharp folks. And um, to be included in in this group is is an honor. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, you are very welcome, Patrick. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer. And check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.